In this episode of 2036 the podcast, join Laney Graduate School Dean Kimberly Jacob Ariola and Professor Lauren Klein as they explore the concept of data justice. Intersectional feminist thinking can be operationalized in a way to direct more ethical and equitable data science. You know, we hear all these problems like, you know, the biased data sets, we hear about disparate outcomes, the idea that systems are optimized for certain groups and not others. This is not news to humanities scholars and it's especially not news to feminist theorists um, and feminist sociologists who have thought about how power over determines every single thing that we do all of our interactions all the privileges that we experience on the one hand all of the oppression that we might experience on the other this has to do with these larger forces of structural power right feminist thinking has a lot to say about what the possible solutions might be like the debiasing right it's like oh no we produced a biased model okay let's debias it or oh no our training data is biased let's debias it an intersectional feminist approach would say that is that will never work right because trying to fix things after the fact does not get at the root cause the reason why we end up with biased data in the first place i am dean kimberly jacob ariola and it is an absolute pleasure to interview dr lauren klein this afternoon lauren thank you for joining me thanks so much for having me lauren could you start by talking a little bit about your career trajectory and how you came to be a faculty member here at emory university <laughs> um you know i've always been someone who thought of myself as having dual interests um so from a very young age i was a big nerd uh i always liked computers and i also really liked reading and i thought you know like you know you can trust books <laughs> you can always trust books i like that spoken like a true professor <laughs> um so, yeah, so i went to grad school in english i really pursued a traditional kind of disciplinary training actually in early american literature i was really interested in the cultural foundations of our country and how choices about culture and sort of who was authorized to make that culture and what was upheld as emblematic of a national culture were sort of shot through with questions of race and gender um and racism and sexism just as i was finishing my dissertation i started to hear rumblings about this new field called digital humanities i went to a conference over the course of the day i was realizing like this is this is it this is what i want to do this is what i've been looking for i immediately started experimenting with some of what were then sort of state of the art computational methods which i knew how to use cuz i had worked as a software developer um and i started to see really the generative potential of them and i was just very lucky that at that moment georgia tech was hiring they were like we think your kind of thinking will fit really well here and so i spent 10 years there and it wasn't until 2019 uh when i saw this ad that emory was looking for someone who did literary studies and quantitative methods and i saw the job ad um and i was just like this is this this is my job Uh and I guess the rest is history. <laughs> I love the way you started off by saying you have dual interests. And so what you charted was a path that allowed you to really integrate your core personality characteristics and skills and attributes around dual interests and merge them into an exciting and innovative career. And so tell us more about the work that you do now. So I kind of I still do two things. 
Uh, one of the things is that I t continue to take sort of state-of-the-art computational methods, which right now have a lot less to do with sort of counting words and getting software to run, and they're much more about modeling language, about identifying sort of new machine learning techniques and seeing how they can apply to literary and cultural data. But I also try to take humanistic ways of thinking and apply them to quantitative methodologies more generally. So I'm very interested and I'm strongly invested in the humanities not just being like yet another domain space where you can take these methods and apply them, but I really do want a two-way exchange. So not just what we can take, what we can do methodologically from quantitative sciences and bring them to the humanities, but also how can humanistic thinking inform and enhance quantitative methods, right? And in a way, that's a lot trickier because it involves a lot of abstraction, a lot of translation work, a lot of sort of striking out, but it's something that I really believe in, and that's actually a lot of the work that I'm most excited about right now. Among your publications is Data Feminism, written with Catherine D'Ignazio and published by MIT Press in 2020. Could you describe what data feminism is and why it's so important? Sure, yes, so data feminism, what we present is a way of thinking about data and data science that's informed by intersectional feminist thought. We try to be really clear about how intersectional feminist thinking can be operationalized in a way to direct more ethical and equitable data science. You know, we hear all these problems like, you know, the biased data sets, we hear about disparate outcomes, you know, even people talk about right now, people are bemoaning like the brittleness of AI systems that are optimized for certain groups and not others, but like the idea that systems are optimized for certain groups and not others, this is not news to humanities scholars, and it's especially not news to feminist theorists um, and feminist sociologists who have thought about how essentially power over determines every single thing that we do, all of our interactions, all of the privileges that we experience on the one hand, all of the oppression that we might experience on the other. This has to do with these larger forces of structural power, right? Feminist thinking has a lot to say about what the possible solutions might be. And so the intervention isn't like a post hoc, you know, corrective, right? In the particular context of AI, you hear this a lot. And thankfully, actually, I think this language has now been a little bit deprecated, like the debiasing, right? It's like, oh, no, we produced a bias model. Okay, let's debias it. Or, oh, no, our training data is biased. Let's debias it. An intersectional feminist approach would say that is that will never work, right? Because trying to fix things after the fact does not get at the root cause, the reason why we end up with biased data in the first place. But if we understand what took us to that point, we can create better data sets. We can ask ourselves, should this technology exist or not? Do the people who it impacts the most want it? Right? Is it necessary? And if the answer to that is no, because the answer to that is almost always no, how about we talk to the people who we are seeking to work with, whose lives we're hoping to sort of lend our research to in order to improve, and like ask them what they want. Right? What's so powerful is that you bring a humanistic perspective to the concept of AI. So how will imbuing AI with the humanities ultimately make AI better? You know, history is biased, right? And 
humanities scholars always work with the material they have. We, in effect, work with a biased data set. I mean, we call it the archive, but that's, in effect, what it is, because we've all heard this expression, right? History is written by the victors. You know, that is, that, that's true, right? It is. And when you go back, like I work on the 18th and 19th centuries, when you go back into the archive, what you find are the people who were deemed important in their own day, who were authorized to write their version of events, um, who are the ones whose materials we have to study right now. And so questions about how do you tell the other parts of the story? You know, how do you recognize what you have as only a partial view? And what are the interventions that you as a scholar can make so that we can figure out what other people had to say. You know, just to sort of bring this back to this question of biased training data or things like this, you know, humanities scholars are not very interested in what is the most likely, the most predictive feature. We're interested in the outliers, right? Or we're interested in, you know, the noisy aspects of the data set or the things that break the model where you're like, why is this happening? Or why is my, for example, like, why is my classifier unable to classify this kind of language or this type of discussion? Because that's where humanity scholars identify. That's where we can learn the most. That's where the most meaning is. And again, because, you know, the cultural record is also shot through with these unequal power differentials. That's honestly where the most intervention needs to happen, right? It's like at the margins, not at the center. You have a course on data justice that you teach. Can you talk about how data-driven systems could be designed more equitably? Sure, yeah. So this was a course, and I should say it was co-taught with uh, me, uh, Maggie Penn, John Patty, and Mahal Arbeli, um, and we cut across the humanities, the social sciences, and the natural sciences. Michal is an evolutionary biologist. Uh, Maggie and John are political scientists. They're formal theorists. And we actually decided to teach this course. It actually sort of came about in the wake of the Black Lives Matter summer when there were a lot of conversations about what institutions could do and what faculty could do to be better allies um, you know, for black lives and black liberation more broadly. And it's always been very clear to me, um, both because of my historical work and because the work that I do with respect to data feminism, that data is so connected to these questions of racial justice, right? Um, and data has a real role to play precisely because of this power that I was talking about before. People trust data. People make decisions on the basis of data. And if you want to affect structural change, you better have some large-scale, statistically robust study to back up what you're asking for, right? I mean, this is not to negate and, if anything, to affirm, you know, like, individuals know what is happening to them, right? Like, they are not the ones who need this evidence, but this is just a lever of large-scale change, right? So what we try to do is to emphasize to the students, first of all, you know, that a justice-oriented approach to data science not only is possible, but is necessary, but also that ultimately no one was going to tell them how to do it, right? There's no single way to do this kind of work, but they really have to decide what they believe in, what they think is just, and then which methods are appropriate in order to achieve that aim. And so one of the themes that we kept on coming back to is when you're modeling anything, you're always making choices, right? And it's really, really important to understand the moments when you're making those choices that can have impact. You know, it is now somewhat 
famous or even commonplace to say, you know, there's like 17 different competing definitions of fairness, right? Like that is true. And it's not a mistake to operationalize any single one of them, but it is a mistake to not ask beforehand, what is the outcome that I want? Will this definition of fairness get me there? Or will it take me further away from the concept or the outcome that I had in mind when I started? So that's just sort of what we were trying to do in the course. So what must we invest in for our use of data and artificial intelligence to build a better and more just world? So the first thing, I think in the big sense, you know, we need to invest in communities and we need to invest in time in order to build relationships of trust with those communities, right? You know, a lot of this work needs to take its cues from the people who are impacted by the work. But there is not a very good history of scholars, researchers, academics interacting with communities on the level. This is not like Emory, this is like, you know, look at the past 200 years of academic institutional research, right? In order to build those relationships, we need time. Um, And unfortunately, academic timelines don't often grant us that time. And so to me, it really seems that if we want the most equitable outcomes, if we want the most wanted outcomes, the desired outcomes, if we want the most necessary outcomes, we need to put in the time up front in order to build these trusting relationships so that we can work with communities, the communities that we want to support as equal partners. I was about to ask you, what do you see as the major impediments to those investments? And you clearly articulated that one of those impediments is the disconnect between the academy and the community in which we seek to improve life, health, the the broader society. But what do you see as other impediments to this kind of investment that's needed? We really need venues, structures, funding, to support interdisciplinary scholarship that advances research in all of the fields that are involved, that makes it possible for everyone to come to the table as equal partners. And so that you can, I, you know, I really think this is true. Like the problems that we're facing right now, they exceed the bounds of any one discipline. All of the problems that we work on that matter are complicated. And no single person and no single discipline has all of the tools in order to solve them. But again, you know, we far too often are on these disciplinary silos. We publish in different publication venues. We even have a different vocabulary for communicating the results of our research. We need more spaces and more structures that can support learning and collaboration and the identification of these shared interests. What does the responsible use of data mean to you? I think it's a term that unfortunately has been used without too much specificity, without enough specificity, because it really matters, right? The work that we're doing impacts people, and we can never forget that. And so I think when we're thinking about responsible AI, what we really need to be thinking about who we're accountable to, you know, what communities we're accountable to, asking ourselves, you know, if this work shows up in someone's yard or if this changes their day-to-day lives, will this have been work that was wanted, that was necessary, that has the impact that the people who are affected by it, the, the impact that they wanted, right? Um, and I also think this remains accountable to our collaborators, to our students, you know, to the staff that support our work, remembering like all of this work is the work of, multi, of many, many hands. And we need to be thinking about you know, whether the standards that we say that we want to uphold 
are ultimately the standards that we have met at the end of a particular project. As faculty, we play such critical roles, though, because you are teaching and training the next generation of scholars. And so you have this opportunity to train scholars who very intentionally collaborate with communities, who give voice to marginalized populations, who bring them into work and um, into the into the scholarship and uh, ensure that there is voice in their work. And so where the field goes depends on how we train our students. It's so important, I think, just to give them examples of what this work looks like, that it can be successful, that it can be impactful, that it can be rewarded. Because so often, I'm sure you see this too, the students come in and they're like, I really want to make a difference in the work that I want to do. But they don't know how, right? They don't know where to turn. And the things that they've heard about are broad and at the national level and are really hard to pin down into a specific research task that can lead to measurable impact. But when you say, hey, look, here's an initiative that took place at Emory, right? Or here's a student project that looked into this really interesting and kind of problematic issue at the level of the student body. Like that's an example that they can work with, that they can use as a model for the work that they might do just in that semester. It's a really powerful approach, which is just to bring it back to individuals' experiences, the things that matter to them, um, and that's what will help students relate. Lauren, clearly you're a game changer, and you're doing innovative, exciting work that really is going to have lasting impact. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for talking with me. On the next episode of 2036, the podcast, the best of what AI has to offer is when we build tools in a fair manner that helps expand human possibilities. And the worst of what AI has to offer is when these tools and the way they're built detract from human possibilities through surveillance or through manipulation on social media with advertising. Part of the responsibility is on us is to push for the better, not the worse. When people understand AI and machine learning and its connection to data and some of the potentials and some of the pitfalls, that gives them an ability to ask questions, to make demands for appropriate treatment, to expect better, quite frankly. And I think all that starts with understanding. Join host Munir Magjani and Emory Law Professor Matthew Sag as they consider the best and worst that artificial intelligence has to offer. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about 2036, Emory's campaign to transform the future, visit 2036.emory.edu.